Listener Production. Hi, and welcome back to Broadsheet Around Town. I'm Nick Connellan, Broadsheet's Publications Director, and I am so excited to chat with today's guest, an artist whose work has appeared at MoMA in New York, the Tate Modern in London, and other top-tier galleries around the world. But also, an artist who's funny, relatable, cheeky, and sometimes profound drawings you probably recognise from greeting cards, mugs, and tea towels, or even just Instagram, where he has a million followers. He might draw a chonky crocodile with the caption, pleased to eat you, or a locomotive labelled, fast train to Shitsville, or during COVID, a simple yet optimistic screen print declaring, it won't be like this forever. I'm talking about none other than British artist David Shrigley, who's in the country overseeing a new installation at the NGV. Welcome, David. Thank you. So, you don't have children, but you do have a wife and a black schnauzer named Inca, and you once said about Inca, my dog likes tennis balls. I throw them and she chases them. Her interest is more about exchange than possession. What came out of that observation? Well, I... I use that observation to justify my artwork that is currently in the NGV in Melbourne called the Melbourne Tennis Ball Exchange, where people are invited to bring an old tennis ball or any old tennis ball and um, exchange it with a brand new one in the exchange. And that is, uh, yeah, that's the premise of that work. So I do have a dog, and tennis balls are really important in our relationship, although her relationship with a tennis ball is um, very much that of a dog, where she doesn't actually bring them back, which is probably uh, speaks ill of my um, training skills as a dog owner, but never mind. But yeah, dogs don't have possessions, and that's we're told that we can learn stuff from our pets. And I think that's perhaps quite an important lesson to learn that you don't really place that much value on objects. So yeah, I guess the artwork that I made is about trying to figure something out. It's 8,000 tennis balls. It's going to run for 10 days. Um, but that it's actually a second iteration. So the first one was at the Mayfair Gallery in London. Is that right? Yeah. It's uh, the gallery who represent me. is called Stephen Friedman Gallery. And they're based in, in Mayfair which some of your listeners won't be familiar with London town, but it's, um, yeah, it's quite a singular part of London. It's very she-she. It's a place where Savile Row, for example, is where they make, where, you know, the king gets his suits made. And um, there's quite a lot of other fancy galleries, shops that sell watches that cost more than my education, (laughs) things like that. So it, it's calling it, acknowledging that place in the title of the work is, is, was sort of interesting in some ways because Mayfair and, and London in general, central London is a, a lot about really, really high-end commerce. So you're spending, as I said, £10,000 on a watch. Um, and the idea of just taking a grubby tennis ball and exchanging it for a new one is... Um, is somewhat at odds with that, but then again, technically it's sort of the same thing in the sense that you exchange money for a fancy watch or whatever. So yeah, it was kind of maybe an examination about that, that the nature of transaction, commerce, exchange, 
whatever. And it had a very much a, a kind of op art feel when it was first opened because they were all clean tennis balls, all brand new tennis balls. So and quite- on those beautifully illuminated racks as well, it almost looked like a high-end retail concept, like an Apple store. Or- it did, yeah, or, or maybe the Nike store if it just sold tennis balls. So it was quite a strange environment to be in, but it changed very quickly as soon as people started exchanging the tennis balls. People have used it as a a sort of opportunity to display their own artwork. So they made artwork on the tennis balls or written messages or swear words in some case on the tennis balls. So Melbourne is known as a food city, or at least that's kind of how like we like to see ourselves in addition to being about art and sport and live music and fashion. What's the most memorable meal you've eaten recently? Yeah, I agree. I think Melbourne's a fantastic place to eat. I think that's part of the um, part of the affection that I've developed over the years of coming here is based on um, that amazing food culture and coffee culture as well. Uh, weirdly, I was just in New York last week or the week before to do another exhibition, and the coffee's diabolical <laughs> in New York. It's diabolical. And um, it's, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, Premier League coffee in Melbourne, definitely. Um, And I had a lovely meal uh, the night after we got in, just off Linda's Lane. Maybe I won't name name the restaurant, but there's so many good restaurants in in Melbourne. It's it's great. And I I go to Copenhagen quite a lot because I show the gallery there. I make prints there and stuff. And I've been going for many, many years. And Copenhagen, as you probably know, really punches above its weight as a dining city uh, in the way that Melbourne does. But it's quite a different aspect. So the bar's set very high in Copenhagen, but also Melbourne too. Melbourne's a bit more informal, I would say. It's, I'm sure you have your own Michelin star places here, but I quite, I quite like that, just the bar in general being set really high. Um, and I've become a bit of a foodie. In my old age, now I'm now I can afford to eat at fancy restaurants. So, yeah, I very much I love the dining culture in Melbourne. And so, is that kind of when you're traveling for work that um, that's a real perk for you now? Oh yeah, definitely. I uh, I love to be fed. I'm kind of a big guy, and I'm getting old, <laughs> and I get grumpy if I don't get fed. So, um, yeah, I'm really happy. You love eating out. You love throwing balls for your dog. What else do you do when you you're not working? Uh, I'm a bit of a, a soccer nut, so yeah, I'm a, well, a soccer nerd, should I say. I like going to soccer matches. I was very disappointed not to be able to go to a soccer game in Melbourne this time because uh, I went to see Melbourne Victory and Melbourne City last time, which I really enjoyed. And there's another team called Western United who unfortunately had their game postponed, so I didn't see that, but I got to go to the Open to the tennis yesterday so that was really great so that kind of made up for it and I've never been to a, a professional tennis tournament before I really enjoyed that never been to Wimbledon in fact um which I'd imagine is a rather different affair mm. uh, than, than than Melbourne which is a bit less uh, a bit more about a party yeah than, uh, than the informality of Wimbledon but yeah really enjoyed it so Alcaraz who I think is going to win this year so that was a real treat. I'm interested to hear you say about the football because I was immersing myself in, in your work over the past week or so. And you've done a lot of um, pieces which are about, I hate football, I hate football, F football. 
<laughs> is this sarcastic or is this kind of in that moment of being a, a fan where your team's lost and it's like, why do I bother? Yeah, I've always been a bit sensitive to the fortunes of my team and it makes me really miserable when they lose. And, and which, it, which team is this, by the well, way? Well, my, my first love is Nottingham Forest, which is a team from near where I grew up. Um, so, yeah, my, my misery knows no bounds <laughs> with their um, toils and trials and tribulations. But unlike um, Aussie rules, for example, in, in the UK and, in fact, everywhere in Europe, certainly, we have a tier system in terms of football. So if you finish bottom of the, the top league, you go down to the second league. If you finish bottom of that league, you, so you can keep going down and down and down. And until you end up playing on the park with where you know people, you can bring your dog to come and watch the football, <laughs> and then conversely you can go all the way up again. So the the consequences of failure are, uh, are somewhat more in 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 the world of European soccer. So it's further the fall. Oh yeah, and and surely it's it's material to be mined for your work as well, the emotion and the passion and the. I don't know. Football's sort of my hobby, but it's it is some kind of weird uh, self punishment as well. There's, you know, unless unless you experience unless you have that passion yourself, you don't really understand what I'm talking about. And it sounds really lame. It's that it, incomprehensible that you can be so miserable because your team has lost. Are you a morning person? Are you up and about? Is that kind uh, of your routine, or you... yeah, more so these days? I used to be a bit more of an evening person when I was younger, but um, I never, I never had kids, so um, it was the dog that always met, was the change in my life that made me get up early. And um, the beginning of the day is, is is the best part of the day. I think if you're happy to get up in the morning, it means that your life is good, that you're in a good place. And I, I feel I am in a good place. And unless it's raining, in which case the dog doesn't like to go out, which is which is good, which suits me, you know. Yeah, I'm one of those dog owners. Well, you know, childless, middle-aged man who lets the dog sleep in his bed, which is <laughs> just a disaster on all sorts of levels. Don't do that, listeners, if you're thinking of getting a dog. <laughs> and so what, what sort of time are you up in the morning and what time are you at your desk working by? I'm usually up by about seven, um, I'm at the top of the hill, at, um, literally at the top of the hill, near where we, we spend most of our time these days in Devon, by about 7.30, back for porridge. Um, I'm, I'm usually in the studio by about 10, but I, you know, I try and avoid, increasingly I delegate the email answering and the tedious side of life to other people, but uh, yeah, I do eight hours a day, 10 till 6 bring the dog with me to the studio. I have a nap in the afternoon. Oh, insights into my life. <laughs> that that, that's what everyone support. wants to hear. Yeah. I think once you get to your mid thirties, you need a nap or at least I did anyway. I remember I got to about 35 and suddenly I just, it's just about switching the computer off and on and suddenly it works a bit better. So I just have, you know, 10, 15 minutes. I always, I read a story once about Salvador Dali. And he used to sleep in a chair in his kitchen and he would hold a giant silver spoon in his hand. And uh, when he drifted off into a deep sleep, he would drop the spoon onto the terracotta floor and the noise would wake him up. And this is, was, is sort of, was his 
the origin of the power nap, I guess, <laughs> that you don't want to go into a deep sleep. So I sort of remembered that. And I, I have, I do not have a terracotta floor or a giant silver spoon, but I, um, I just lie on the sofa with the dog sometimes. But I don't know, I'm sort of primed. I, I drink a glass of water and then I wake up 15 minutes later because I need to go to the loo. So that's, that's my, your own version of the silver yeah, spoon. Yeah, it's not as good as the silver spoon, really, but it works. The tennis ball exchange isn't the only work that you're showing here at the NGV. Um, out the front right now, there's also a big seven-meter-high bronze sculpture of a hand giving a thumbs up, and it's got a big, comically elongated thumb that some people have described as phallic. The sculpture was originally commissioned by the City of London in 2013 for the fourth plinth, which is an empty plinth in Trafalgar Square that's used to show rotating works from different artists. And that piece is here until the end of April, and it's called Really Good. What's it about, if anything? I was invited to make a proposal for the commission. Maybe they invite 30 artists to make a proposal. So you just do, do a drawing and write, write us you know, a few paragraphs on what, what your intent, intentions are. I was quite flippant in the way that I did it because I didn't think I would get the commission because it's so prestigious. I didn't really feel at that time that I was going to be taken seriously enough. I'd, I'd done some drawings of, people doing a thumbs up with an elongated thumb and I sort of felt like the fact that it was you know it's the quintessential gesture of this is good a thumbs up but if it's a really long thumb that means it's really good even even more good so I I wrote a proposal that basically said that if I made this piece it would be like a self-fulfilling prophecy where I say everything's really good and then it becomes really good um and it would be, you know, like social reform, social development on a, and it would be very cheap to do it. That if the <laughs> Greater London Authority invested in this work, it would make London a better place. And um, I did it, and then I thought nothing more of it because I didn't think I was going to get the permission. And then I was shortlisted and had to make a model of it, and and then I got the commission, and I was overjoyed. I was really thrilled by this, the best thing that had ever happened to me as an artist. So got to make the piece but then i realized the piece is you know put on the plinth and it's the day of the unveiling and suddenly i have to do media you know right i've got to do interviews like i'm being interviewed by you now and i've got to stand by this statement so i'd forgotten that i'd said this in the first place so there you know i'm on live radio or wherever it is because it was a three-year process wasn't it from getting commissioned to actually the piece being put on the plinth yeah something like that two or three years um so I'd forgotten. Anyway, so the radio presenter, some slightly right-wing radio presenter is reading this proposal back to me, saying, oh, it's a <laughs> self-fulfilling prophecy, making the world a better place. But what I realized, and I'm like, oh, dear, I wish I hadn't said that. <laughs> but I realized at that, that, that moment that as an artist, you have to believe that your art makes the world a better place. I mean... Yeah, maybe in a very small way that, that it does make some small change, that it is a positive thing, it is a positive intervention in the world. So I sort of realized that I kind of did mean what I said, even though at the time I was being sarcastic. So I thought that was really interesting that it was a, a statement that was both sarcastic and sincere at the same time. <laughs> it sort of also heralded uh, a change in my thinking about the nature of being an artist and about the value of art and 
the arts is that it is a positive thing, particularly, you know, encouraging other people to make art, to be involved in the arts in general. It is a really positive thing for people's health and well-being. So in, in that sense, it's been quite a learning process to make that piece. It also straddled the moment of Brexit in the UK as well, which was like, uh, I don't know. I, I don't really want to go into that, but it's... Um, well, it, it arrived at just the perfect time, didn't it? Even though it was, again, it wasn't I don't know. maybe intended for that. Well, everything really wasn't, isn't very good because of Brexit. So it's definitely not really good. I, I joked that we should have t- turned it upside down after <laughs> Brexit, you know, because it was just, well, it's just, you know, without wishing to get too political about it, it's not done the UK any good to leave the European Union. In fact, it's been done us a lot of harm. And uh, I defy anybody to, in that sense, it, it's some horrible irony. I'm still depressed about it now. <laughs> You've been making art since the 90s. You've been exhibited at the NGV and the Tate and MoMA and very big places. But, but you'd said in a previous interview that um, that fourth plinth commission was kind of a turning point for you, that you, you felt, oh my God, what, how did I get this? What happened? Can you explain why that was and why it felt like that to you? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I think that, uh, as I said before, I felt like, when I pr- made the proposal for the commission that I wouldn't be considered for it because of the way that, uh, because I felt that I wasn't perhaps seen as being the kind of artist that would be suitable for a very visible public art commission. Why, why is that though? Because uh, I make drawings on paper that are seen as cartoons because I'm a funny artist. Uh, my work is... Uh, is full of comedy, I guess, and kind of unapologetically so. And I think there's perhaps a misunderstanding that comedy is the opposite of serious intent, which isn't isn't the case if you think about it. The opposite of serious intent is uh, incompetence mm. or dilettantism. And uh, I'm certainly not a dilettante. <laughs> I mean, I've spent my entire life in this endeavor, whatever you whatever whatever you think of it. Um, and comedy is something that I, I embrace, I cherish. I think comedy is a gift, um, and it helps us to understand the world. And it is comedy is also kind of anarchy as well. It's it's a force for change. Um, it's uh, exciting. So my work's always been infused with comedy, and I don't really, you know, and I, I suppose the opposite of comedy is misery. It isn't seriousness. Um, so I, I've sort of, yeah, got to a stage in my life where I have to accept who I am and what I do and accept my voice as an artist. And also, I've come to realize that you don't see yourself as other people see you. Like I'm saying that um, the art world saw me in a certain way or sees me in a certain way. It's impossible to know that. It probably isn't the case. It's like you see every pattern except your own. You know, you don't, you don't know who you are. You don't know how other people see you. You just have a, a sort of perception of it. And at times, when you become a successful in what you do, as I have, uh, you, when people come and ask you for your autograph, you sort of like, 
really? Why? Why do you want my autograph? Why would you do that? But, why, uh, why are you so excited to see me? But your fans don't ask for autographs, do they? No, they ask. Well, they asked me to sign things more recently. Uh, all sorts, do tattoos and all sorts, which is another, yeah. I can't think of another artist who's, who's kind of got that aura around them that a lot of people ask you to draw on their skin with a, a, a surgical marker, isn't it? And yeah. then they will then go and get that tattooed. And I read that, that at one time you were really uncomfortable with that because it was, it was all these young girls and you said, a 25-year-old with you know, beautiful young skin shouldn't be getting my drawings put on it. Have you, have you come to terms with that and accepted it or is it still a bit odd to you? Yeah, without wishing to sound like an old man. When I was 20, the only people who had tattoos were people who'd been in the army or been in prison, basically, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, or bikers. You know, it'd be you know, twenty-five-year-old librarians from you know the well-to-do suburbs did not have tattoos, and certainly not visible tattoos anyway. Um, but that's all changed. Like er- they, everybody's got a tattoo, and I don't have any tattoos, and I don't. It's not that I don't disapprove of it. It's not for me to tell people what to do. I just, um, I just that commitment to defiling yourself <laughs> is something that i find slightly mystifying but then at the same time i think well if you're gonna defile your beautiful young body it might as well be me that does it what i like about it <clears throat> is that i do it in the way that's the antithesis of the way that you're supposed to consider getting a tattoo like you're supposed to consider the design refine the design give it lots of thought and the positioning and whatever where you're not supposed to get some idiot just to come me being the idiot with a surgical marker, just what do you want? An owl, where do you want it? On my left breast. Okay, there you go. That's not what you're (laughs) supposed to do. But I like that commitment to the moment. I like that commitment to the drawing. It seems somehow to me appropriate. Uh, And there's irony there, I guess, as well. So I like that moment, but I don't, I'm sort of a bit, I I mean, I'm a heterosexual man and everything. And (laughs) It's, it's not lost on me the attentions of a young woman but it's not it I, it's feels inappropriate somehow <laughs> do you have your marker with you no oh. well yeah there's the thing though if you want one if you you don't have to have a star on marker you just have to have a new pen that's unused and then it's the same as a star on marker so if you've got a big biro i'll draw on you right now let's do it nick you yes. don't have to have this done, right? No, it'll be fun. So listen, I have to tell you right now, you don't have to have this done. You are under no obligation. And my suggestion as an arts professional is that you don't have it done. And I will not be disappointed in any way. You are under no obligation to have this done. I, I feel like I'm being read, read my rights here. It's got that it's kind of It's a bit like being at Dignitas, you know. Or, no, the vibe of kind of, you know, um, anything you do say may be used in evidence. It's like you've memorized <laughs> this script. You, you told me the story about the penny farthing and losing the top of your finger when you were a young child. Yes. So I lost, I lost the tip of my right like, index finger when I was like, five years old. And would you like me to reference that? I'd like you to do whatever feels good to you okay all right yeah it's got to be on your screen so just want to see how it goes 
the thing is, right, I'm just going to do a little bit. Yeah. I'm just going to do a little bit here because it's got to be on your skin. There we go. But that's not a tattoo, although it could be, I guess. <laughs> okay. So we've got a finger. Looks like an index finger. You draw a lot of index fingers, actually. I've seen a lot of them in your work. Yeah. I was tailor-made for this. That's it, an index finger. <laughs> it's a ghost finger. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> well, it kind of it kind of brings me to my next question, which is from drawing on people to just drawing in general. You're so prolific. And I think I read about your process is that you try and fill about 30 sheets of paper a day in those eight hours that you're working, which is, that's a lot. And then you end up throwing away about three quarters of them. I've kind of realized over the years that you just, um, you making art and probably doing anything, the way to do it is just to get on with it. Uh, the work makes itself if you put the hours in. The way I go about it has changed over the years. So I don't, I don't really edit so much anymore and I don't really throw things away. I actually let other people edit them now because I realize that because I principally make a living from making drawings on paper, um, it's not helpful if I edit them because I make really weird decisions. I've, I've realized this probably as a direct result of social media. So the things that I post on social media, I don't actually do my own social media these days, but when I did my own Instagram or whatever, I would always have, say I'd have 100 drawings or 100 paintings on paper. They're all documented and I have them all on my phone. And every morning I would get up, give the dog her breakfast. And while she was eating her breakfast, I would make the post on Instagram or Twitter or whatever it was. And I'd, I'd sort of think, well, you know, there were always about five or ten I thought were really good out of, out of that 100. So I'd post them first and in on in social media you get an instant response as to how popular how much people like this so this was kind of a revelation for me so i'd post the ones that i thought were genius i th they were the best drawings out of that group i thought these are really really good so maybe there are five out of a hundred that i think are just fantastic does anybody like them no no <laughs> they don't they like the one that and then Conversely, you've posted 90 or something and there are 10 that are left that you think are rubbish. Or they're not rubbish because you've made them. They're, they're finished and everything. But they're just the ones that you don't really like or understand or just didn't quite, I don't know, they just didn't resonate with me for some reason. And I post them, everybody loves them. For some weird, not course. all of them, but there's always one, and it's not just as simple as pictures of cats, which seem to get a lot of likes. It is about sometimes it's just I'm just like really that one, you know. And I, I over the last year, for example, there are two or three images that people just really, really respond to, and they're never the ones that I think are really good. I mean, sometimes they are. So I've realised that. I need to let other people do the editing in terms of what what is uh, presented and what is presented for sale because that's how I make a living. Otherwise, I'm I'm not being very sensible. As an artist, though, isn't there a danger of kind of, for lack of a better term, of chasing those likes and the 
what are people going to like? What are people going to like? Well, I embrace the ignorance of it. And also I delegate the whole task. So I'm not, you know, I know that some people, I, obviously I'm, my work's popular, so that's fine. It's just which images are popular. Mm. That's sort of the slight head scratcher, you know. And if you start, uh, if you start chasing things like that, then yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I make a living as an artist and I don't have to have a job. Uh, so I'm, I'm content already. I, art is an inquiry. It's not a demonstration of excellence for me, at least. So, and, and, and if you see it in that way, then you, you can have a really joyful time in the studio that you're mm. just trying to figure something out, trying to go some, trying to change it, trying to do something different, albeit within a certain media. And uh, and surprise yourself. So that is that is the joyful, exciting thing. So from from kind of my outsider looking in perspective, it feels like the reason you're able to put so much stuff out there is because a lot of your work focuses on these kind of small, fleeting moments that are you know tender or profound in some ways, and not big and ideological. And I have to spend six months mediating on what this means and all of that. But th- there must be. Uh, concepts that you keep coming back to or kind of things that you're seeing within yourself or in the world that keep driving your work forward. Are there, are there any things at the moment that are really occupying your mind that you're obsessed with or keep coming back to? I, I always feel like I'm at the beginning of something, you know, and I always want to feel like I'm at the beginning of something, at the beginning of everything. I feel I want to see every day in the studio as like the first day of art school. And people say... Which you got the lowest possible score in, famously. Not quite the lowest score, no. <laughs> I wasn't, wasn't the worst. <laughs> I definitely wasn't the best. I was towards the bottom of the class. But I went to a, figura- a school of figurative drawing to, to an extent. In, I went to Glasgow School of Art, which has a, at the time that I studied there, had a very proud history of uh, figurative excellence in figurative painting and figurative drawing albeit I didn't study in the painting department, but um, it's changed a bit now. Uh, so, yeah, I wasn't, wasn't that well thought of. But I want to, art school, for me, I loved going to art school. I loved, I loved the idea that you could just go and make art all day. It was really exciting. You know, when I go to the studio in the morning, um, I, I want to feel like that. I want to feel like everything's an adventure, everything's new. And people say, oh, I want to live, live each day as if it were your last. I don't really want to do that because you might end up doing some really bad things. <laughs> I want to live it, live each day as if it were my first, you know, because then, you, you, you know, everything's new, everything's exciting. So, yeah, that's my positive blah. And ha- how long until you're back in the studio? You mentioned, you know, going away sometimes for several weeks at yeah i've got to move house actually when i get back because we're, we're doing some big home renovation so i've got to spend a week moving stuff so i need to do yoga while i'm away so my back's strong so i can move all the boxes but yeah probably 30, 30 years worth of drawings <laughs> perhaps not not quite no it's um we kind of did a bit before we left so uh hopefully it won't take too long so anyway middle of february probably before i get right back into it but yeah i've got to make you know there's nothing stopping me you know, making some art while I'm here. And long plane journeys are quite good good times to get some thinking done. 
I, I want to be that person on the plane next to you. It's just like, oh, it's just David Trigley doing a drawing on the, the plane next to me. I write, I write a lot on the plane, though. I've got my laptop, and I tend to write a lot of words because words are a big thing with my work, obviously. But, yeah, I find that I can't, I can't really write it any other time, so I write sort of poems and things on the laptop. Um, and I, 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 whilst long-haul flights, as most Aussies will know, are pretty torturous, um, you can. There is the opportunity to get quite a lot done in terms of writing and the um, solitude yeah the solitude so it's either that or watch a will ferrell movie <laughs> so i'd rather better to do something useful uh well thank you so much for coming on the show and i hope you um have a great time in melbourne and a, a good long-haul flight home good productive flight remember what i said about the tattoo <laughs> Listener.